the experience, like, does anybody have a friend who they knew when they were quite small, or maybe it's your sibling, and like, in their professional life, they are a really big deal now. But you knew them when they were five, right? Do you know what I mean? Or like, sometimes you read stories about people who, um, like, went to high school with celebrities, and we only know them as celebrities, but that person was like, remember them when they were like kind of awkward in high school. Okay, well, here's the thing. This morning, our guest speaker, I'm so delighted for this, is my very best friend. And um, I've known Susanna for like almost 15 years. And when we met, we were just coming out of university. We were really getting started. Like, you know, you're trying stuff out as young adults. And so I have all these memories of her, none of which I'm going to share. Don't don't even worry. Uh, but I have all these memories of her uh, and of me when we just, you know, we were different because we were very young and, uh, and, and we were trying things out. Anyway, but now my very best friend, who to me always just feels like this lovely, bubbly girl I knew right out of university, this is... She, this wonderful woman is the uh, vice president of external relations for Wycliffe Bible Translators in Canada. And so every time I say that or see it written, I think, I just, you know, you have a moment where you think, how did I get to be friends with that person? That's amazing. <laughs> how come I know the vice president of external relations? And now you're going to all know her as well. Um, this is one of my favorite people in the whole world. You come on up now. Yeah, now I've talked a little bit about you. Um, the, the whole time that I've known Susanna Munz, she has been, I think, equally passionate about two things. And one is scripture, Bible study. Like, we started to really get to know each other in these very... Um, very powerful manuscript Bible studies that we were doing with our friends. So scripture on one hand, and then also um, the world, people all around the world, different people groups. Even when I met her 13 years ago, she had been to more places than anyone I knew. And her and her dad have this like ongoing oh, yeah. challenge to see who can get to more countries. But I think That's you're right. lapping him now. Yeah, because he's getting older. Yeah, Hans. <laughs> Pick up your game. Anyway, so um, so the this is this is the person I've known, and I just I feel like this role that she's doing now, and the place that she's going to speak to you from this morning, is it's the perfect sort of match of those two things. So I've been waiting for a long time for you to hear from her, and today is the day. I'm going to pray for you. Thank you. Okay. Um, Jesus, I'm really delighted to have Susanna come and teach us. And I pray that our hearts would be ready for the word that she brings. That as she preaches this morning, as she invites us to consider um, people groups that we might not have considered, and to consider the privilege it is for us to have the scripture, um, I pray that you would open a new level of compassion and understanding and commitment in us to your mission around the world. Mm-hmm. I pray in your name. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I only make Dana call me VP sometimes. <laughs> I'm kidding. Never. I, I really never do that. Um, nobody does that. <laughs> that would be weird. <laughs> it's really sweet to be with you. Um, 
First, because I live in Toronto, but our national headquarters are in Calgary, so I leave Toronto to get warmer in Calgary, and then Calgary gets cold, so I'm like, Dana, can I come and stay with you in Creston? It's way warmer and so beautiful out here. It's so, so lovely. Uh, I also love that I get to fly in and out of Calgary because it means that though I live many provinces away from my dearest friend, God, because he is good to us, allows me to see her quite often. You guys, she's pretty great. You are very lucky. (laughs) I'm really excited to be able to share some of my very favorite stories about what God has done and what God is doing in the world. And one of my most favorite stories is found in the book of Mark. We're going to pull up that text on the screen right here, and I'm going to read it for us. You might have phones. You might have a Bible in the form of a book with you. Feel free to open it. It's Mark chapter 5, verses 35 to 43. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher? Anymore. Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Do not be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and they went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. We know from verse 35 that Jairus has a position of power. It mentions that he is a leader in the synagogue. This gives him spiritual authority, status, so much street cred. He has all the position and the power in his community. He also is likely wealthy. He is very well known. He is deeply connected. But he has just come to Jesus desperate because his daughter is sick. And while they are on the way, Jesus has just stopped to speak to another woman who has approached him from within the crowd. And Jesus has stopped going to Jairus' house. And Jesus instead has been healing this woman as she tells the truth about herself and as she exercises this great faith. Jesus heals her body. He renews her dignity, and he restores her to her community. And yet in the middle of this powerful moment, we find Jairus on the side. Even though he has all of the power here, Suddenly, he has heard the terrible news that now his daughter is dead, and this one sentence turns his whole world upside down. All of his power, all of his wealth, everything that put him at the center 
has now made a great reversal in his life. Now he knows what it feels like to be helpless, to be on the margins, to be peripheral to the sources of power and with limited access to the resources needed for thriving. In the hills of Peru live the Quechua people. They are descendants of the Inca. And the Inca have a rich heritage of sophisticated social structures, advanced architecture, and engineering as illustrated by Machu Picchu. There are buildings that were built in Peru that have not withstood earthquakes that were designed by computers and the best and brightest minds. Machu Picchu still stands today. No modern technology was used to build this. This is the heritage of the Inca people. They held authority over all of their land, and they were a well-known people. But disease entered their community, and as the Spanish came and conquered their land, the Quechua people and their language was pushed to the margins. They became relegated to the hills of Peru, becoming subsistence farmers. The people that once built and lived in these majestic temples are now living on the hills of Peru in small homes, desperate to make sure that their crops that year are enough to feed their family. They struggle to retain land rights. They struggle to have political voice. And even as the Christian church is growing among the Quechua-speaking people in Peru, the only Bible they had was in Spanish the language of their conquerors. We don't often think about that component. I think we have heard about people who have economic poverty. We've heard of people who don't have access to food or water or shelter. There are people among this community of the Quechua that are struggling for that. But there is also another form of poverty, a lack of access to the scriptures in their language. So even though they are hungering and thirsting for the living God, every time they open the Bible, it is the language of the people who took from them the very resources they would use to have food and shelter and water. I'm going to ask us to do a little bit of math this morning, which is that every fifth person in a row would stand up. I know this is going to be complicated. You'll have to just count and kind of like in groups together say like, why don't you stand up? If you're a group of four, just have one person stand up, but try to have every one out of every five people stand up. Yeah, good. We're doing it. Yes, I believe in you. That's excellent. Keep going. I think this corner still has some more ones and fives. Yeah. Maybe at the, the very back, just one person. Yes. I see you. Oh, and tables. I know, I know. At the back, can you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, thank you. That's great. Perfect. Sweet. The stats today around access to scripture say that one in five people do not have access to the whole Bible in the language that they best understand. One in five. Imagine this many people in your church only have Half of it. Only have a third of it. We can go to the next slide. This is half the story that we just read. You can sit down. 
One in five. Two years ago, I didn't know that. I wouldn't have known that it was that high. One in five people experience this type of poverty. Only half the story. Only half of what God intends to say to them. And here is another statistic. 180 million people right now do not have a single verse of scripture in the language that they best understand. There are 7,000 languages in the world today, but for 2,300 distinct people groups, the Bible looks like this. Nothing. There is nothing that tells them the story of Jesus with Jairus and his daughter. 180 million people. Like the Quechua, these people are often in remote geographical locations. They're in politically unstable contexts and are a minority culture striving to survive and thrive in their context. But what this story in Mark reminds us of is that Jesus loves to come close to those on the margins. I want us to pay attention to two parts. First, it says that Jesus overhears what Jairus has just heard. Even as Jesus is healing this woman, Jesus is still listening and paying attention to Jairus. And then further on in the story, we see Jesus choosing to come into the place of highest vulnerability, the person who is most overlooked, the person most hidden, the person with the least amount of power. And that is this little girl who has just lost her life. And we see Jesus decide to come in. It says he went in where the child was. And he took her by the hand. Many of you will know that this would be unheard of for a rabbi. Good rabbis don't do this. There are a bunch of laws, first about touching women. But then second, if you touch a dead body, you are unclean for seven days. And what this means is you cannot worship in the temple. You have disrespected God. And you cannot be in connection with your community lest they become unclean too. But this is showing us something different about God. Jesus is showing us what God is like. That God, through Jesus, comes close to those on the margins. He draws near to the messy, vulnerable, isolated, and fearful parts of our lives. Jesus loves to come close to the people who are most overlooked, abandoned, or ignored. And when he comes close... He wants to speak to their reality. But we're getting ahead of the story. Let's go to the next slide. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house to Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. As a father, I can imagine, I'm, I'm not a father, but I imagine that Jairus, as a father, that this is his deepest moment of fear. His daughter is sick, and there is nothing he could do to prevent her death. He has been powerless to change the situation. And as fear grips his heart, the gravest danger here is that he will do what his friends are suggesting and telling him to do, which is walk away. Why bother the teacher anymore? But Jesus has something to say about the internal reality of Jairus. 
Jesus is aware of what's going on and says, Jairus, do not be afraid. Only believe. And Mark doesn't tell us what Jairus starts to think, but we do know that Jairus, instead of just walking away, walks with Jesus towards his house. And this is where they encounter the grieving crowd, a crowd that is wailing and causing commotion. And I want to pay attention to this particular word because it would be easy to think that Jesus is kind of harsh. Of course they are wailing. Why wouldn't you grieve over the death of a little girl? Why shouldn't there be this kind of crying? But Mark is using some language that helps us understand that Jesus is seeing something else happening. This word commotion, if we look at the next side, the way that it is used in the scriptures is that it is to make a noise or an uproar, to be turbulent, to disturb, and to throw into confusion. This is not simply a community coming alongside in grief. This is a community in danger of causing confusion, distraction, uproar, and pulling Jairus away from the voice and presence of Jesus. We don't know if that's what they intended. Grievers were often hired to come and grieve with the family. What we do know is that now Jesus is speaking to the external reality of Jairus. First, Jesus spoke to his fear, and now he is saying to the crowd around him, no. This crowd needs to be set outside. This crowd, this external reality needs to be put in, his, in its right place. The fear inside Jairus and the confusion and despair of the mourners outside the house were all saying the same thing. It's over. There's nothing anybody can do. This is reality and it cannot be changed. But at each moment, Jesus has something to say. Where there is fear, there can be faith. Despair and confusion should be silenced and sent away. And so the second thing that we see in this text is that Jesus' presence and voice redefines reality. In Peru, there were anthropologists who began to pay attention to the Quechua people. They were seeking ways to resource and empower the community. And as they studied the community, they began to notice a particular phenomena, which is that ages 11 and 12 and 13-year-old girls stopped going to school. And it had been happening for a really long time. And as they talked with the community, they started to hear the same story again and again and again. These girls didn't stop going to school because they had been assaulted. They stopped because they were tired of being assaulted. It was happening to such a degree and with such frequency. The families and the girls themselves said, well, the answer to this problem is we stop going to school. We simply return home. Freddie Quintanilla is a leader in the Quechua community. You can see him here with a bunch of school children. He's on the side. He estimates that as high as 90% of girls among the Quechua community have been assaulted by the age of 14. In response to this, the anthropologists began to ask themselves, what should we or could we do? 
They decided there was nothing they could do. It was just Quechua culture. And who were they to say that this should stop? It had been happening for so long. There was nothing to do but watch and grieve. But Freddie and his team, they had been starting to translate the Bible into Quechua. And as they became aware of this pattern of abuse, of girls at 11 and 12 and 13 stopping and going to school, as they began to pray and study, they knew that God had something to say about this. They decided that they would go from church to church and community to community, teaching them about what God had said in the Bible. They were teaching them in a language that they best understood, not Spanish, in Quechua. God has created all of us. Every single person holds his image, including the young women in your community. In order to honor God, we need to honor one another. And this makes assault wrong. It should stop. As Jesus was speaking through the Bible to these Quechua people, communities started becoming safer. Girls started returning to school. Jesus was redefining the reality of the Quechua community and was leading them to a future that others had not imagined for them. As we come to the end of the passage, Jesus is standing with Jairus, Jairus' wife, Peter, James, and John, in a room with a girl who has just died. We can go to the next slide. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with them and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talithakum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this time, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, we need to think a little bit about language at this moment. Jewish people, uh, from, from their beginning, spoke Hebrew. That was their language, their everyday language. The, non, the language of nursery rhymes, the language of the stories they told around the campfire. But in about 600 or 500 BC, as they were in captivity, in order to survive, they began to speak the language of the people around them, which was Aramaic. They became a bilingual people in order to survive. In 300 BC, you start to notice in Jewish writing, Aramaic writings showing up right alongside it as Aramaic becomes more prevalent, as more people speak it, and fewer people speak the language of the high priests and of religious ceremonies, which was Hebrew. And by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, he as a Jew is often speaking Aramaic. That is what they spoke in Galilee. Aramaic had supplanted Hebrew because this people had been in captivity and were figuring out how to survive in a new way. Now, everything that Jesus has said so far, Mark, as an author, has chosen to translate the Aramaic into Greek. Mark does not write down all the Aramaic that Jesus says. 
It's translated immediately into Greek. And the reason that it's translated into Greek is that Greek was the language of the educated and the intellectual. And so that's why the whole of the New Testament was written in Greek. So it would address those kinds of people. But for some reason, Peter, who is in that room, was coaching Mark, who wrote this book. And Peter has said to Mark, are you following me here? Peter has said to Mark, Mark, what you have to write down about this moment is that Jesus does not speak Hebrew to this young woman. He does not speak the language of the spiritual elite. He does not speak the language of the historic temple of the Jews. Jesus does not speak the language of the Greeks, the educated, and the people in power. Jesus speaks Aramaic. Why does Mark make that choice at this moment to let us, who speak English, know that this happened in this language? I think it's because this language was the language of this little girl. The songs that her mother sang to her. The language of her father as they talked, as they walked along the way. This is the language of her daily life, her closest relationships, and her deepest thoughts. And it is Jesus' voice in her language that calls her back from the dead, that rises her up. I think Mark wants us to know that in the intimacy and power of this moment, it is accessible not only to those who have spiritual power, and not only to those who are educated. It is accessible to fishermen and farmers, synagogue leaders and laughing skeptics. It's available to 12-year-old girls who speak Aramaic, and it's available to 12-year-old girls who speak Quechua, because Jesus is the God who comes close, and Jesus is the God who redefines reality, and Jesus is the God who speaks your language and raises you up. Even as girls were returning to school, so many changes were happening across the hills of Peru. We can go to the next slide. One man said, as friends of mine were talking with him, he said, when I read the Bible in Quechua, it's like eating soup with a spoon. Because when I read it in Spanish, it's like a fork. I don't get everything. I get some, but I miss like two-thirds of it. But when I read it in Quechua, it's like eating soup with a spoon. I get the whole thing. As I was traveling there, I was sitting in the car with Freddie and talking to him, and we're driving along up into the hills, and we're going to meet these two lovely women that are shown in this picture. And he said, oh, you can tell, this community has the Bible in Quechua. We are far away, friends. So I say to him, oh, um, uh, how can you tell? <laughs> how, how is it that you know that they have the Bible in Quechua? He said, oh, that's, it's really easy, actually. You see, when preachers start preaching in Quechua and not Spanish, Men come back to church because they understand it. They often haven't gone to school or, or have uh, learned how to read, and they're kind of bored. So they come back to church because it's in their language. And then they start to hear about the power of the Holy Spirit to help them overcome things like addiction to alcohol and anger issues that they have about being an oppressed people. And as their lives begin to change, they start working their fields more consistently There is more food on the table of their families, and the fields are literally greener 
because the scriptures have come to that people in their language. Friends, I, I know it sounds like I'm making that up. I, I literally was in the car as this man is describing it. The police in those communities know where the scriptures have come. They will say this community is safer. This grass is greener. It's not all easy. There are still challenges. If having the Bible made us perfect, wouldn't Canada be the perfect country? <laughs> it doesn't. But God is doing powerful things, remarkable things when he speaks to people in their language. These two young women, whose story should have been that they stopped going to school at age 12, they are now the teachers in a new school. They are teaching others how to read and write in Quechua, the dignity of being a Quechua speaker in Peru, not just a Spanish speaker, saying that your future does not have to come if you are required to learn the language of the person that took your land. Your future can come when you speak your language. Jesus can come when you speak your language. He will speak it back to you. These men in the far corner, they are pastors, and when we were visiting them, they were translating the book of Ruth into Quechua. How sweet. How sweet. These men are sitting under the teaching of the life of the woman named Ruth, and they are learning that God speaks their language. Jesus' voice in the language of those on the margins is transforming people here in Canada, too. Jesus was doing it for Jairus and his daughter. Jesus has been doing it for the Quechua people. And Jesus is now doing it in Canada. Despite what they have been told, Jesus actually speaks Cree. Right here in Canada, there are 100,000 Cree who are living in remote communities scattered from Alberta to Labrador. And they speak five different but related Cree languages. Plains Cree, Woods Cree, Swampy Cree, Oji Cree, and Northern Alberta Cree. Men and women in this community have had a vision to offer indigenous spiritual leadership using the language that they speak, using the language that they best understand. We've been working with a man named Mark McDonald. He is the National Indigenous Bishop of the Anglican Church of Canada, and he emphasized the importance of this initiative during a recent meeting. What he said was, Scripture thrives on translation. The gospel is the only message that the more it's translated, the more we have. We always think that there is loss when we translate. The gospel, the more we translate it, the more we have. It is the incarnation of the word of God into our lives and communities. And I don't think there's anything you can do today that is as critical as the work of Bible translation for First Nations communities. We are on a trajectory of hope. We are on a trajectory of justice, and we are on a trajectory of salvation. Oji Cree, you can see it in the, in the bottom in Ontario there. This is the latest language to see translation begin within the Cree initiative. The visionary efforts behind this belong to Lydia Mamakwe. She's the area bishop for the Anglican Church's first completely indigenous diocese. She leads a team of six mother tongue translators in Kingfisher Lake. Mamakwa and her colleagues had personal experiences of being in residential schools where their mother tongue was prohibited. But since 2015, with a strong community of translators behind them, this team is translating thousands of verses into Oji Cree for their church's Bible readings 
each Sunday. They welcome this change instead of reading the scriptures in other Cree languages, which they don't quite understand. People are very happy, she says. People say it makes it so much clearer to understand what God is saying. It becomes real. Such a simple phrase. It becomes real. But that's what happens when Jesus comes close to those on the margins. It's what happens when Jesus redefines reality. And it's what happens when Jesus speaks your language. So, how does this connect with our lives today? How do we apply stories that happened almost 2,000 years ago? Stories that are happening among the Quechua in Peru. Stories that are happening among brothers and sisters within Canada. First, I want to just give us some space to remember that Jesus comes close. Like Jairus, we might know that we have affluence, power, wealth, but I think we can all identify with moments where we feel like we're on the margins, like we can't access the thing that we need in order to survive. And Jesus comes close. He is coming close to you. Secondly, I want you to reflect, what is defining your reality today, internally or externally? For Jairus, it is fear. For others of you, it might be grief, loss, joy. There might be a transition, a job change, a source of uncertainty. What is defining your reality And how are you allowing Jesus to redefine your reality? It's so nice to hear that story about Jesus raising this girl from the dead and be like, oh, what a lovely, wonderful story. And then we go home and we worry as we clean the dishes and as we care for children. We worry as we think about, our, is my tax return going to be enough this year to cover what I needed? Will the land produce the crops that I need to sustain my business? Jesus wants to speak to that. He wants to redefine reality with you. And there's a couple of ways that that can happen. First, through reading and interpreting the Bible together. The Bible actually um, was not written initially (laughs) and intended initially to just be read alone. It was, it was always meant for communities who would come around that story together and say, what does that mean and why does he do this and what does that mean for me? Take every opportunity to be around the scriptures together. And then talk to Jesus about your reality. I had a picture as I was driving here of people like you also like driving in your trucks. And like as you're driving, like try to figure out how to say to Jesus the most simple truth of your reality. Jesus, I'm stressed. Jesus, I'm worried about finances. I'm concerned about my kid. You know, whatever it is, figure out how to speak to Jesus in a way that makes most sense to you. And then try out this thing that might seem a little bit risky, but to say, Jesus, is there anything you want to say to me? And then just let it be quiet for a little bit. It can feel very weird, but that's why you're doing it in your truck. (laughs) (laughs) Or, Or as you're doing the dishes or in your small group with other people. 
But Jesus wants to speak to you today. He has new and fresh things to say to you. He wants to reshape and redefine your reality through what he offers you. And he will speak, just like we heard that he did this morning. And finally, invite others to help you hear from Jesus. It can seem tricky. It can seem out of reach. It can seem abstract. It can seem impossible. It just seems not intellectually sound. You know, there's all kinds of uh, ways in which we might sort of pull back from that kind of opportunity. But I would encourage you, take that risk. Like Jairus, just take the risk and stick with Jesus and see what he might say. You have stories in your own community of Jesus speaking and redefining reality, and there is more that he wants to do. Finally, there are 2,300 people groups still waiting for any verses in their heart language. If you want to, feel free to approach me afterwards. You can sign up to receive prayer resources and more stories about what God is doing. Um, We can talk about how you could engage with that. And then is there someone in your life who needs to know that God speaks their language? Are you meant to be a gyrus to someone else? Help Jesus get to them and not come to condemn them, not come to, like, manage their behavior, but to come and speak their language and invite them to be raised up. Ask Jesus the best way to do that. Honestly, for some, it will be giving them a Bible. I, I, I worry that you might think that I would just say, just give everybody Bibles. <laughs> we, we actually need to ask, like, what would speak to them the most? There are seasons of people's lives where the Bible they need to read is you and your kindness and a conversation over coffee. That's the truth of God, too. So, friends, I'm inviting us together to know, like Jairus, like the Quechua people, like the Cree brothers and sisters in Canada, that Jesus comes close to those on the margins. Jesus' voice redefines reality. And Jesus speaks your language. I want to pray for us. Jesus, you do incredible things. You are not like any other God. You choose to come by the people that are on the margins, that are broken, that are overlooked, that are worried, that are concerned, that are close to death, that are grieving. I pray that today, for the places in our lives and in our communities where we're experiencing that, we would also experience you coming close. I pray, secondly, that this community would grow in their capacity to hear your voice as you redefine reality? Would you shake us loose from fear? Would you shake us loose from the distraction and chaos that could come from our external reality? Help us hear from you what you want to do. And then I pray finally, first for this community, that they would know that you speak their language that you speak farming and agriculture, you speak small business, you speak child children's ministry, you speak plants and animals, you speak food sharing, you speak all of these languages, the language that is so important to us. And I also want to pray for the Cree people this morning 
would you strengthen and empower your people? Give them courage to continue the work of translation. Would you strengthen their minds and their bodies for that work? In their places of grief and suffering, would you meet them with your power? And would you lead them to places of rejoicing where they are raised up by your voice, speaking their language? We pray these things in your name. Amen.